As we continue our series, in Colossians, one commentator wrote, Spirituality is not a matter of conformity to a code of rules. Spirituality is not a matter of exciting experiences. Knowledge, rules, and experiences all foster pride. Finally, spirituality is not a matter of recipes. Do these three things three times a day and you'll be spiritual. Spirituality is not mechanical. These things seem so spiritual, but they're nothing more than distractions. Today we come to our third spiritual pitfall. The distraction, the pitfall of asceticism. We've looked at the spiritual pitfall of legalism. Jesus plus works. We've looked at the spiritual pitfall of mysticism. Jesus plus personal spiritual experiences. Today we're going to look at the spiritual pitfall of asceticism. Jesus plus self-denial. See, these teachers were telling the Colossians that they were lacking true Christian holiness because they weren't practicing severity to the body. They weren't complete in Christ. You must add self-denial to Christ to be complete in Christ. Please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Follow along as I read starting at verse 16. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of... Of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ, You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we pray now as we always pray before the sermon, that it would be your word, it would be your truth through your spirit that you would illuminate in our lives and in our hearts and our conscience and our souls. So that not only may we learn, but may we apply So we might become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Asceticism. It's all about self-denial. Asceticism is a teaching that a person contain a high spiritual and moral state by practicing self-denial and self-deprivation. It's the systematic self-denial of normal bodily needs and pleasures as a mean of of attaining so-called a holy life. Asceticism is really legalism taken to extreme. You aren't just made spiritual by keeping a bunch of man-made rules. The ascetic rules that you have to keep are even more severe, even more rigorous and strict. Asceticism is not just within Christian history, but in many religions around the world and even practiced by those who would classify themselves as atheists. 
Hinduism and Buddhism stresses ascetic practices. So if ascetic practices were a way to true holiness, are they becoming holy? Ascetic practices started early in Christianity. Already in the first generation, people were advocating that to be really spiritual. Hey, if you want to be a super spiritual, really holy person, you had to treat your body harshly. Ascetic wrongly concluded that poverty equals godliness. Suffering equals godliness. The more self-inflicted pain and misery you endured, the more godly, the more holy you would become. Look back at verse 8 there in chapter 2. It says, see to it that, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The captivating philosophy behind the error of asceticism is called dualism. Dualism distinguishes between the body and the mind. And this form of ascetic spiritual dualism It differentiates between the body and the soul. The body is evil and the soul is good. You take care of your soul by neglecting the body. They practice asceticism in an attempt to free the soul from the prison of the body. One commentator wrote, Paul's final warning is against asceticism, the imposition of man-made rules as a means of gaining favor with God. For ascetics, the body is a thing to be buffeted and punished, a thing to be treated Like an enemy. They see the body as evil and conclude that the way to holiness is to deny all bodily desires, refuse its appetites, and cut its needs down to an irreducible minimum. Asceticism was apparently a prominent feature of the Colossian heresy, and and in various periods of history, it appealed strongly to misguided people. It was the ascetic spirit that led to the depreciation of marriage, the exaltation of virginity and, the, and monasticism, and the devising of endless means of self-torture. The whole monastery system of monks for men and nuns for women was greatly influenced by this false teaching that self-denial equals holiness. For millennia, people have falsely looked at those who practice self-denial as super spiritual people. People think that external religious fervor is a mark of true holiness. Now, one of the most well-known aesthetics in history is called Simon Stylites. Listen to his story. Simon was born in the year of 18, uh, in the year of 389, 389, just outside of Aleppo, Syria. When he was around 16 years of age, he abandoned the tending of his father's flock in order to enter the monastery. Though the young man's zeal for religious life initially endeared him to his fellow monks, it wasn't long before his passionate strictness began to raise eyebrows. On one occasion, he commenced a severe regimen of fasting for Lent and, and was visited by the head of the monastery, who left him some water and loaves. A number of days later, Simon was discovered unconscious and the water and loaves untouched. His rescuers were shocked to discover that his entire midsection was encased in a girdle of palm fonds, a homemade device for mortifying his flesh. At this, the monastic authorities requested that Simon leave the monastery, claiming that his excessive ascetic efforts were incompatible with their own style of spiritual discipline. 
But following his rejection from the monastery, Simon followed an even ever increasing path of self-deprivation. First, he shut himself up for three years in a hut where he passed the whole of Lent without eating or drinking. Furthering his deprivation, he later took to standing upright continually as long as his limbs would sustain him. And for a time, for years, the ascetic also constrained himself physically, changing his, chaining his body to a post in the center of his meager dwelling. After completing his three years of voluntary imprisonment, Simon then sought out a rocky fatness in the, in the desert where he chose to live as a recluse. While his new environment suited his temperament, it soon came to be invaded by crowds of pilgrims seeking to directly experience the increasing notorious devotions of this desert ascetic. One of the most inevitable consequences of of a life of extreme penance and mortification such as Simon's was the publicity that it attracted. In time, there would be a continuous crowd of pilgrims and sightseers who would come to ask him for advice on almost every subject under the sun, to lay their grievances before him just to touch this holy man. And if possible, to get a souvenir of one of his hairs from his shirt or the such like. While he attended to his visitors, he found it left insufficient time for his own devotion an issue that eventually prompted him to adopt a new mode of ascetic practice. After a survey of the surrounding era, Simon discovered a pillar that had survived among ancient ruins, which provided the saint with the inspiration to create a novel form of personal piety. Following this discovery, he constructed a small platform on top of the column and decreed he would spend the remainder of his days on its apex. So the first pillar was little more than four meters high, about 12 feet. Visiting well-wishers replaced it with others. The last in this series being a mammoth structure that towered over 50 feet off the ground. So many people had come to visit him that they had to put a wall around the pillar to keep people away. For over four decades, he lived atop this pillar, venerated as St. Simon Stylite. Simon died on September 2nd, 459. In 475 AD, a church was built on the site of his pillar. It was one of the oldest remaining church buildings until recently in the Syrian war, where it was just recently destroyed. That's both a fascinating story, right? A tragic story, right? The people looking at Simon Stylites thought they were looking at such a holy man. They equated his external religious fervor as a mark of true holiness. Is holiness only defined by what we don't do? Now, asceticism is not just from centuries ago. In 2009, as the story is told of a self-help guru named James Arthur Ray. While in his early 50s, tan and ruggedly handsome, he had appeared on the Oprah and Larry King shows and penned a bestseller. He was a big player in the self-help world. Participants paid $10,000 to spend five days with him during his spiritual warrior retreat. Towards the end of the retreat, these 
so-called spiritual warriors were to stay alone in the desert without water or food for 36 hours, followed by a return to the camp for two hours to purge in a sweat lodge, vaguely modeled after structures used in some Native American religious ceremonies. There's barely enough space for the 50 participants to squeeze in with a fire pit in the middle, kept hot with fresh coals brought in by Ray's assistant. Ray sat on the outside of the tent, keeping it sealed. About halfway through the ceremony, some of the participants started to become ill. Ray urged them to press on. As the heat grew more oppressive, one man tried to lift up one of the walls of the lodge to allow fresh air to circulate. But Ray chastised him. Then some people vomited, and Ray explained that vomiting was good for them. Ray hovered by the door, intimidating people if they tried to leave. A few people struggled out, but most stayed. Play full on, Ray insisted. You're not going to die. You might think you are, but you're not going to die. At the end of the ordeal, several of the participants were indeed near death. Two died that evening. Another fell into a coma and died a few days later. And all, almost half the participants ended up in a hospital suffering from injuries as severe as scorched lungs and organ failure. These people were on the so-called spiritual warrior quest. And they thought that asceticism was the way to get there. The false captivating philosophy of dualistic asceticism that the body is evil and that the soul is good is alive today as always. This false teaching lives on saying the more self-inflicted pain and misery you endure, the more in touch you will be with spiritual things. If you take care of your soul by neglecting your body. But folks, it doesn't take a master's degree in theology to see the error in asceticism, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're supposed to neglect and misuse our bodies. No, instead, we're supposed to glorify God by the way we use and take care of our bodies. Ephesians 5, 28 through 30 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. See, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the body, the church, so a man is to love and nourish and cherish his wife. Our bodies in these verses are used as a positive example of nourishing and of cherishing. One of the uniquenesses of biblical Christianity is the importance, the value of our physical bodies. See, we just don't have everlasting souls. But one day our earthly, lowly bodies will one day become glorified bodies. Philippians 3, 20-21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. 
Wayne Grudem defines glorification as the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises the dead, raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. See, not only do we glorify God in our bodies, not only will our lowly bodies one day be made like his glorious body, but another great proof of the value of our earthly bodies is the fact of the incarnation. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, the Son, the Word, as John 1.14 says, became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The most ultimate act of showing the value of humanity is when Jesus himself became flesh and dwelt among us. The philosophy of dualistic asceticism, of the body being evil, of the soul being good, is clearly, biblically, heretical. God did not give us a body to misuse and abuse to attain some kind of false level of holiness. But of course, in acknowledging the biblical value of our bodies, we in no way run to the other extreme, where the body is overvalued and its every desire is to be followed. No, one of the main application points of our passage, as stated in verse 23, is that severity to the body is of no value in actually stopping us from indulging in the fleshly pursuits. In chapter 3 of Colossians, it's great. Read it. Read it. We're going to be talking about how to deal with the desires of the flesh. Paul in chapter 3 answers the question, if legalism, if mysticism, and if asceticism is of no value in actually helping us stop the indulgence of the flesh, then what is? What is the process of true spiritual growth and change? That's what the beginning of chapter 3 is all about. Severity to the body is powerless to help us in real spiritual growth. Why? Look there at verse 20. Because we're dead. That's why. It's powerless because we're dead to the elemental principles and spirits of the world. Earthly, spiritual machinations are no help at all to those who are in Christ. In Christ, we are dead to them. We're dead to the law. We're dead to submitting to regulations. We're dead to the human teaching that perishes. We're dead to human religion. We're dead to external-oriented holiness. We have been set free. In Christ, from rules and regulations. Romans 6, 6 6-11 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Who are we? 
We're dead people to sin. And we're alive people to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus rules us. The totality of our being, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Jesus rules us. The totality of our being, our thoughts, our wills, our emotions. See, through him we're dead to external man-made religious regulations. And now instead we're alive to God. We're alive to the Spirit. We've been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above. We love him. We glorify him. Not out of guilt. Not out of compulsion. Out of gratitude for all that he has done. We serve him out of the grace and the mercy and the love that he provides us. See, not only are we dead to the machinations of false man-made religion, but they're worthless. Verse 22 says that they perish. This word perish is a word for decay and decomposition. Man-made religious activities quickly become useless. It's like taking a nice slice of bread. You know, Italian bread. Nice, white, beautiful, delicious bread. And laying it on the counter. What, what happens when you lay that piece of bread there on the counter? Not very long later, you come back and it's all dried up. In no time at all, that slice of bread is more like a hockey puck than a slice of bread. And no one wants to use that for a sandwich. Now, it still has the appearance of bread. It still looks good. It looks just like the bread you would want, but then you realize it's not worth eating at all. It's useless. Man-made religion, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, just like a piece of decomposing, dried-up, hockey puck bread. Useless and perishing. See, not only is it worthless because it's perishing, but it's also worthless because it doesn't do what it claims to do. See, one of the highest goals of man-made religious regulations is that it is supposed to help you stop the indulgence of the flesh. But it doesn't. Verse 23 could not be any more clear. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Take a vow of silence. Do this. Take a vow of silence and never speak a word for years. Does that mean you've tamed your tongue? Is that what that means? Not at all, right? Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, out of our heart, the mouth speaks. So even if you don't say it, you still have to deal with your heart. Because external adherence to rules, external expressions of holiness, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. See, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not following a list of rules. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Spirituality is not adherence to rules, but it springs from within us, from our union with Christ, from our walk with the Spirit. Alexander McLaren said, There is one thing that can put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and it is the power of the indwelling Christ. Are there rules to follow? Of course. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Does the Spirit lead us sometimes through life circumstances? Yes. Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Is there a proper place for self-denial in the Christian life? Yes. Jesus says, if you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, what Satan likes to do is to take the truth of God's word and twist it and then push it to the extremes and then mix in our own spiritual pride. And the end result distances us from the truth and from Christ and from holiness, from joy. It takes us away from Jesus. It takes us away from the truth. It takes us away from spiritual freedom and joy. In this world, our spirituality is not determined by how we measure up to certain external behaviors. It's not outside, but inside. It's not lifestyle, it's life. It's not external holiness, but internal heart motivation. Paul is challenging the Colossians and us to not let ourselves be intimidated by super spiritual lists of do's and don'ts. To not let ourselves be intimidated by false visions that take the focus on us rather than on Christ. To not let ourselves be intimidated by fake holiness that is only external and not from the heart. John MacArthur shared this story while preaching on this passage. He said of himself, I can remember in my own background being in a situation where I was greatly intimidated. Where I became actually paranoid about the things I did. Because I felt that those were the only things that were validating my spirituality. God came up to me one time and he said to me, you aren't spiritual. I said, how do you know I'm not spiritual? He says, because you don't go to prayer meetings. John MacArthur said, I'll never forget that. I said, well, what does that have to do with being spiritual? How do you know I don't spend all day and every night praying? He says spiritual people go to prayer meetings. You see, his whole orientation was that spirituality is determined by external behavior. And when you get in an environment like that, I can promise you, he said, it'll intimidate you. Now, there's another old saying out there. It says you can, you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a pastor or evangelist is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to prayer meeting. That's not true. That is not true at all. Not even close. There are many good, important reasons to come to prayer meeting. I hope you all consider it. It's a blessed time. It's an essential time. But to come as an expression of personal spiritual piety is not a reason to come to prayer meeting. The 14 people who were there last Wednesday are not more spiritual than the rest of us because we came to prayer meeting. Man looks at the outward appearance. Our Lord Jesus Christ looks at our hearts. So please come to prayer meeting. We need to be seeking God together as a church, but come from a heart of love and devotion to Christ. Just like you came this morning to church on Sunday. Just like you go to work on Monday. Just like you serve Christ in your family. As a mom and dad. Just like you love your spouse from a heart of devotion and love to Jesus Christ. See, our sole motivation is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is awesome. 
It's his life and death and resurrection that are the substance of our life. He commands our delight. His word is our hope and our sustenance. His spirit, our lead, our helper, our light. Jesus is awesome. My faith has found a resting place. It's not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Has your faith found a resting place? Think about it. Has your faith found a resting place? Is it in device? Man-made, external, hamster wheel, ever-striving, follow-the-rules, false religion. Is it in creed? Man-made, religious principles of judgment that are only bound to perish. Or is your resting place in Jesus? See, we need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough for us that Jesus died. That he died for you and me. It is enough that Jesus rose. And he rose for you and me. It is enough that Jesus gave us new life. Jesus is enough for me. Jesus is enough for you. Let's pray. Father, now in these precious moments that hang before us in communion, as we hold these elements in our hands, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convince us and convict us. Help us to understand, to see clearly that it's Jesus. He's enough. He's what we need. Not man-made rules. Not legalism or mysticism or asceticism. Jesus. The whole, the whole purpose of writing Colossians was to elevate the supremacy of Jesus. May today in our communion service, through the Spirit, may we elevate the supremacy of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.